Good morning, LCM. Today is Sunday, November 1st, 2020. Your pastors have received military intelligence from the council of our king, and it is our job this morning to debrief you on what our commander-in-chief wants you to accomplish. Today, we're going to equip you. We're going to propel you. We're going to give you insight through classified intel that will give you an advantage over your adversaries in every circumstance. Is that something that sounds like what you want this morning? Today we are detailing the various types of tactics used in warfare, spiritual warfare. The Word of God is clear that we are not to be unaware of the devil's schemes. However, the skill of being aware is found in understanding all tactics of warfare revealed through God's Word. So the title of today's sermon is Tactics of War. Come on, say that with us. Say Tactics of War. Turn with us to Joshua chapter 9. You're going to want to leave a marker there in Joshua 9. We're going to have a large part of our service that is based out of Joshua chapter 9. Tactics of war when you get there. Everybody's going to want to turn. There we go. Yes. We put it on the screen for your convenience, but that does not take the fact that you have to learn to use your sword, your actual word of God in your hand. Joshua chapter 9 and verse 1 is where we will begin. It says, Now when all the kings west of the Jordan heard about all these things, the kings in the hill country, in the western foothills, and along the entire coast of the Mediterranean Sea as far as Lebanon, the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they came together to wage war against Joshua and Israel. See, we're starting off and we're picking up in a new chapter, but the story of the word is continuing on. What did they hear about? What did all these people hear about? They heard about Joshua's conquering of Jericho. Yeah. They heard about Joshua's conquering of Ai. Or if you're from Louisiana, it would be Ai. Ai, babe. It's, it's true. That's just the That's way it is, my it. friends. That's true. It's Hebrew. Joshua has just completed reading every word that Moses declared. Somebody say every word. Every word. He had just finished reading every word that Moses declared in the law to every man, to every woman, to every child, and every foreigner in their community. They had just come off of that, and what you're hearing is a time of revival in Joshua and Israel. They're being victorious, and even when they're not being victorious, they're getting back up and they're conquering those enemies that have conquered them. Joshua just made an altar on Mount Ebal, exactly as Moses had commanded. They had just put the Word of God in front of every body in their whole community. That the Word of God had become front and center for everyone. Everyone had to recognize the entirety of what God's Word had said. And what did that do that caused other kings to hear from it? And did you hear in verse 1? They were the, from the hill country. Yep. They were from the foothills. They were from the entire coast of the Mediterranean. Basically from Egypt to Lebanon. What is it saying? All of the main geographical regions of the promised land, of where they were supposed to be going, are now starting to add obvious opposition. Obvious and direct opposition to the people of God from every region of the promised land, from every part of their allotment, from their golden corral. 
Every king that is listed in this chapter in verse 1, Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, these are all people and kingdoms that are destined for destruction. Every one of them listed here is exactly in the opposition. These are the ones that are standing now against God's people. They're the ones that themselves are occupying the land that God has already given to his chosen ones. And they are going to have to go in and not just fight. They're going to have to go in and not just fight and win. But they're going to have to go in and fight and win and destroy completely the enemy that's before them. Yeah. So this is the stage as we said it. Now let's continue on in verse 3 and see what the Lord might use to speak to us specifically today. However, when the people of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and I, they resorted to a ruse. Say that with me, church. Say ruse. Ruse. A ruse. We're going to come back to that. They went as a delegation whose donkeys were loaded with worn-out sacks and old wineskins. We read that in Young's Literal. It's pretty fun. Cracked and mended. They put worn and patched sandals on their feet and wore old clothes. All the bread of their food supply was dry and moldy. So what we're, we're getting to in chapter 9 of Joshua is the tactics of war. And what Pastor just got through covering were the obvious oppositions in warfare, right? And that's a necessary thing to begin to plan for. When you're planning on going to war, you have to deal with what is well fortified, what is going to be a direct opposition. But there's another tactic of war that we want to bring to mind this morning. This is based on the word ruse. So let's just go to where we find all sorts of information, the Google. And we found a website that is Merriam-Webster's website. And the definition of ruse is here on a slide. Definition of ruse is that it's an action intended to deceive someone or trick. It gets even better when you look at the synonyms. Because deception and trick can have a very light weight to it. But a ruse is something that is very complicated. It's well thought out. It's well planned. It has many layers and many different options of how to bring about that deception. You can see here on the bottom of the screen, it says synonyms for this is ploy, stratagem. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. It is also tactic. It's the third one in that list of synonyms. Scheme, cunning plan, maneuver, subterfuge. That's a really good word. It is a smokescreen. It is a 450-pound red herring. It says red herring in the list of synonyms. That's a big one. It is something that's designed to blind you of the tactic to win. Now, when we're looking at this, this is a tactic of war that is coming upon Joshua's doorstep, right? After winning a very obvious war at Jericho, winning even after repenting in the course of battle at Ai, bringing everyone to Mount Ebal, reciting all the words of Moses before all the nation of Israel, they had an obvious revival going on in Israel. And this is the very next means of battle that they begin to face, and it starts with a ruse. See, the NIV says they resorted to a ruse. There's a plot. There's a tactic that's at foot. The complete Jewish Bible says it was clever deception. 
It's not just throwing out a lie. Like when your kids say something to you and it's obvious. No, I did not eat the chocolate chip cookie as the crumbs and chocolate are there. This one's actually designed. It's almost like there's, a, there's a, an enemy who's trying to design a specific ploy, tactic, stratagem, ruse to get you. The New King James says, worked craftily. There's others that use the words like working wily, yeah. wilily. That's just a funny word. The point is, is that these are military tactic, tactics designed to get at God's people. Yeah. Take a look at this next slide. We put it and we found a military definition. In a military deception, a ruse is a trick of war designed to deceive the adversary usually involving the deliberate exposure of false information to the adversary's intelligence collection system. We're going to leak some false information to you yep. so that you think we're going to attack you here when we're really attacking you here. Yep. We're going to let you think that you've already got the plan worked out and so you're prepared, except that's not what the enemy's going to do at all. And by the way, in this context, the people of God are the adversary. It's a strange perspective for us to have, but this is what the Gibeonites are doing to the Israelites under Joshua's command. See, the enemy has stratagems that he's resorting to. We want you to pay attention to what's going on because I promise you that this has incredibly pertinent and relevant information to you and I today. I feel like the Lord spoke to me during our worship time. I saw a picture and... Two songs before we got to break every chain, what I saw was a picture of men and women in this room and they had chains on. Except the chain and the lock on the chain was already broken. What we used to call a dummy lock. Even if there was something that looked, it wasn't attached. You could just take it off and put those chains down. Except we were walking around with chains that looked like a tie. We had it around our shoulders and kind of lapped over. We had it around our waist. We were carrying chains. And I'm going to tell you today, church, that you're going to start to hear the chain, the sound of chains falling off of your life. Yeah. Amen. Because they've already been broken. Yeah. But there's been a ruse from the enemy to try to get you to keep these things upon you and to keep battling. You're like, no, this is just my attire. No, it's a chain that has to fall off of your life today. We are not going to fall prey to the ruse but there is a ruse that is afoot. There is a stratagem. There's a, there's a ploy of the enemy, a tactic that he's using. And we're going to get to this tactic here in just a second. That stratagem, that ruse, that military tactic is designed for you to carry something that God did not design for you to carry. That's the imagery of that chain that God has broken. He set you free. But it's your responsibility to throw it down. It's your responsibility to let go of something God did not give you. When we're looking at this story in Joshua 9, the Gibeonites have a ruse that is now using subtlety. It's using the, the disinformation, the exposure of, of false information to garnish something from Joshua and the Israelites. So through familiarity, through past experiences, what the Gibeonites are going after is sympathy. Say sympathy. Sympathy. See, what they faced beforehand was direct and obvious opposition. It's like somebody looking at you and saying, I hate you because you love Jesus. That's easy to deal with, man. 
You're a cult leader. Yes, I am. Hold on. I'll be right back. Go to my house. I'll get a shirt that says it. That's easy to deal with. The ones that are not are the ones that are subtle. That play on your heart. Pull at the strings of your heart of have sympathy for me and begin to use relativity. This is how we're similar. In fact, when you look at that verse that we started out in Joshua 9, right? They go through a list of things. Worn out bags. Old wineskins that are cracked and mended. These patched sandals. These old clothes. These dry and moldy gatherings of bread that we have. I want to remind you of something. Deuteronomy 29, verse 5. Don't turn there. Hold your place there in Joshua 9 because we're going to come back to it. But this is what the Lord is speaking to Israel. During the 40 years that I led you through the wilderness, he said your clothes didn't wear out, nor did your sandals on your feet. You ate no bread and drank no wine or other fermented drink. I did this so that you might know that I am the Lord, your God. What the Gibeonites are playing on and are fully aware of are how the God of Israel provided and protected Israel. See, look, here's the ruse, the tactic of the Gibeonites. Joshua, you and your nation, your clothes didn't wear out, but ours has. Sympathy. Your sandals didn't wear out, but ours have. Sympathy. Our wine is depleted. Can't you relate to those 40 years of being without wine? Sympathy. Our bread is moldy. You receive fresh bread from heaven on a daily basis. Sympathy. It's it's a new military tactic, a stratagem, that's aimed at using the previous ways of God's provision to evoke a compromise. To provoke sympathy that begins to let you or make you lower the standard of what God has already said. So let's put this more in our terms for today. You ready for that? We have, we have, we are just carrying things around in old bags of sackcloth. Huh? Pastor, I've, I've repented. I mean, surely you see me come down to the altar. It's just that, uh, I haven't been able to see the kind of victories like you have. Sympathy. Old wineskins. Pastor, I'm just dry. I'm just, I'm just going through a dry season. I'm not as full as God's, of God's presence as you are. He just seems to visit with you more than he visits with me. Mm-hmm. Sympathy. I've got patched sandals. Look at my poor sandals. My walk with the Lord hasn't been as supernaturally as empowered as yours. I mean, I mean, it's just, it's kind of, it's okay. I mean, God's not doing something wrong. It's just that my sandals are a little patched and broken. Sympathy. Had old clothes. I mean, I've had some, I've had some righteous deeds in the past, but just nothing new lately. I mean, it just doesn't seem as powerful, as miraculous as what goes on in someone else. You know what? I just can't really do as much as you can. I mean, we're, there's just a separation between you and me. I love what you can do, but I just can't do the same thing. Sympathy. Got dry and moldy bread. Pastor, God's word just doesn't come alive to me like it comes alive to you. I mean, after all, you're a pastor, right? Sympathy. Basically, what I'm trying to get at, Pastor, is, is my situation is difficult and yours 
is a little bit easier. I mean, it just comes naturally to you, Pastor Wade. You don't have to fight sin like the rest of us. You're in ministry. You're in ministry. It just happens easily for you. Sympathy. Please have sympathy for me because I just, I just can't. There's a reason that I'm not doing as well as I should. There's an excuse that, I mean, yes. a reason that I have, and I need you to have sympathy for me. This is a tactic. This is a stratagem. This is a ruse, and it's spreading false information in your life. It's spreading false information to your military intelligence collection system. Yes. And we're going to help you fight this today. Amen. Because it's there. We've got to come up this idea of sympathy. I need sympathy. This is exactly the ruse that the Gibeonites were trying to use against Joshua here in this passage. Let's keep going. Well, some, not somebody. Everybody say, Pastor. Pastor. You're preaching to me. And you're preaching about me. See, what we're laying out before you is that sympathy is a stratagem that's designed to steal your clarity. It's designed to convolute the military intelligence that God has already given you. It's a ruse to trick you, to keep you from seeing the real enemy until it's too late. Until you've invested in steps and progression of committing to it. When it's revealed, it now... What are you going to do? Go back on your word? Well, speaking of sticking to the word that God has already given us and being able to clearly see past the ruse, the stratagem that sympathy tries to play upon us. I'm going to put up on the screen, stay where you are in Joshua, 1 Kings 13, verse 16. The man of God said, I cannot turn back and go with you, nor can I eat bread or drink water with you in this place. I have been told by the word of the Lord, you must not eat bread or drink water there or return by the way you came. This is a young prophet, and he's just rightly addressed a very obvious opposition in King Jeroboam. And bringing the word of the Lord to that king about his altars that he's built to Baal. And now he is on his next mission. God is directing him. And God has given him a very clear objective and how to accomplish it he's given the military intelligence but then we have a stratagem there's a ruse that comes about verse 18 the old prophet answered i too am a prophet i love jesus too as you do as you are and an angel oh it's not just the word of the lord came to me Jesus showed up in the flesh, put his hand on my shoulder, and spoke this word to me. An angel said to me, by the word of the Lord, bring him back with you to your house so that he may eat bread and drink water. It is a direct opposition, but in a means of now using a ruse. Using a military tactic of familiarity. Hey, I... I'm spirit-filled. I love Jesus. I, you know what? I got born again the same year that you did. You know, I was reading the Word, and that one you just shared, everybody, I was reading that this morning. Therefore, what I'm going to share with you is going to be completely opposite of what God told you yesterday. Aren't you glad for just some of the plain, push-shot statements in the Word that help us understand? 
Because after the words of the old prophet here in 1 Kings, it's in parentheses. But he was lying to him. <laughs> Man, what the word of God just does for us sometimes is set us free from these chains of sympathy that are looking to weigh us down and kill us. That they state, it, it, God's word states plainly how we're to view these things. See, he's, this old prophet is looking to garnish sympathy by relating to who the young prophet was, what his function was. And by garnishing that sympathy, he's going to get this young man to compromise and eventually leads to his death. Take a look back in Joshua chapter 9 and verse 6. Say tactics of war when you're there. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal. The place where the reproach was rolled away is where the people of God are camping. That's a good place to camp. And said to him and the Israelites, the, the Gibeonites are saying to Joshua and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Like the prophet of old, these guys are beginning with a bold-faced lie. Now, even if you don't understand the whole story, even if you're not as familiar with this as we expect just about everybody in this room is, you should know because of the fact that they're using a ruse and the Word of God told you that, that you know that they're not telling the truth. We want to treat. I mean, I mean, we want a treaty with you. We, we need something from you. By the way, the point of every ruse that comes against you, the tactic of the enemy, is to try to get you to compromise with the actual Word of God. What God actually told you to do. Since you have a marker in Joshua 9, turn with me to Deuteronomy 20, and let's read this together. I want you to put your eyes on this. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 16. Verse 16 says this, However, in the cities of the nations the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Do not leave anything, I'm sorry, do not leave alive anything that breathes. Pretty clear word from the Lord, right? Well, what about the little puppy dogs? Do not leave alive anything that breathes. What about the, do not leave alive anything that breathes. If it's breathing, don't leave it that way. Verse 17. In case you missed that part of it, completely destroy them. The Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Does that sound like a very familiar list to you? It should because it's the exact same list that's in Joshua 9. As the Lord has commanded you. He didn't suggest it to you. He's not asking for your approval upon it. He's commanding you to do this. Verse 18. Otherwise they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods and you will sin against the Lord. The people of God are receiving a word of God. And it's giving to them in a clear manner. For those living in the land of your inheritance. In the hill country. By... On the, along the coast, all the way from, the, from Egypt to Lebanon. Anyone in this space of land that is supposed to be yours, you're supposed to go in and completely destroy them. Why? Because idolatry is the inevitable fruit of you not completely destroying them. Otherwise, they will teach you to follow all the detestable things they do in worshiping their gods. Idolatry is what is at play here idolatry is the inevitable outcome of you not destroying the people I'm telling you to destroy. When you have sympathy, when the Lord does not, you have engaged in the first steps of idolatry. Yeah, that's good. When you have sympathy 
for that which God does not have sympathy for, then what you have done is you've taken your first step towards idolatry. Because you are now choosing above what God has said, above His will, above His way. You are now choosing to do something because it feels right to you. Come on. Get it. It resonates within you in a certain way, and it's called sympathy, and it's a ruse of the enemy. Matthew 6 tells us that you can't have two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other. And with sympathy, you have taken the first step towards having another master that's that's controlling you. You're going to be devoted. You're either going to be devoted or you're going to be deceived. There's no middle ground. There's no room to be double-minded. Since you're in Deuteronomy 20, turn with me to Deuteronomy 7. One more quick passage just to help illustrate the point. Deuteronomy 7, 1, it says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them, somebody say delivered. Delivered. Them over to your hand, and you have defeated. Somebody say defeated. Defeated. Then you must destroy. Somebody say destroy. Destroy. God is going to give them. He's going to deliver them over to you. You have to battle with them and defeat them, but that's not enough. You then have to destroy them totally. Like totally. You have to absolutely annihilate them. Look at the last sentence. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. You have to have a no treaty, no mercy, no sympathy kind of attitude or the inevitable outcome is that you beginning you begin to move towards idolatry in your own heart. You do. This is God's instruction to his people. Yeah. This is not a blanket statement to the world. He's speaking to his people and this is what he's speaking to us today. Let's go back to Joshua 9 and verse 6. Is everybody there? Then we're going to reread six. We read it earlier. Then they went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the Israelites, we have come from a distant country. Make a treaty with us. Now you would think that this is, this is just some kind of arbitrary means of pulling off a ruse. It wasn't. It was something very skillful and tactical. See, We know from reading Joshua 9 that this is a ruse. It's false information for the purpose of deception. And even if you didn't already know the outcome of this story, you should know that the Gibeonites are lying. Does everybody understand that? But what makes this ruse so deceptive is it seems to address the very issues and being supported by Scripture. You read earlier in Deuteronomy 20, Now, if we back up a few verses from where you read previously, hold your place in Joshua. We'll put this up on the screen. Deuteronomy 10 begins to lay out the premise that the Gibeonites are pointing to when they make this statement in Joshua 9, 6. Deuteronomy 20, 10. When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. If they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work with you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, lay siege to that city. When the Lord your God delivers it into your hand, put to the sword all the men in it. 
As for the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the city, you are to take these as plunder for yourselves. And you may use the plunder the Lord your God gives you from your enemies. Verse 15 is the key. This is how you are to treat all the cities that are at a distance from you. And do not belong to the nations nearby. See, what once was in Jericho and I, an obvious opposition, now utilizing God's word and a standard that exists in it but didn't apply to the Gibeonites, is the satanic stratagem, the ruse, to deceive and divert God's people from the plan. See, the satanic stratagem by the Gibeonites have launched a powerful weapon of deception. We're distant from you. You can offer us a treaty. See, it's not that their request has no place in God's word. Instead, they are forming a ruse that seems to adhere to God's word. The problem here for Joshua is the first step. And here's what I mean. Is that so many of our sympathies have the ruse of feeling correct. They ring with some truth that we have heard. Let me give you something that's, that's, that's realistic. That you are ministering to someone. And they want to have the kind of way of life and the fruit of the way of life that you have. But they want to do it in a way that's one or two degree, degrees of difference. You feel like it's wrong, but you're not really sure why. But then you see all the good things in their life. They have a genuine testimony. They can quote the word. We pray with them. They pray in tongues. They have some seemingly good godly fruit on the inside, but you're not sure why something just doesn't feel right. And you begin to sympathize with their position. And you do or you compromise for them something that you know you wouldn't compromise for somebody in this body. You know, let's put it now in-house, you compromise for somebody in this body something you know one of the pastors would not compromise with that person. You begin to let the heartstrings of sympathy lower the standard of God. And although you have steps two through ten biblically correct, it's step one is where you failed. That's what makes you so committed to carrying it out. See, this is where Joshua failed. He failed in step one. We fail like he did in this moment. Because we don't have the living word of God becoming living and active in every situation. Judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts so we can judge the thoughts and attitudes of other people's hearts. We miss this very first step of discernment. That no matter how well you manage the decision from that first step on, you're still going to be destined to displease the Father because you failed from the get-go. You begin to double down on a bad decision. You fall in prey to the ruse, a tactic of war that is used by the enemies of God. Come on, let us help you to understand this better. Joshua chapter 9, verse 7. Everybody with us there in Joshua 9 and verse 7. Okay. I need you to stay with me. I need you to, I need you to get keen and alert here because there's something that's about to be said. There's something in the scripture that needs to trigger something inside of your heart. The Israelites said to the Hivites, hmm. I thought we were talking about Joshua and the Gibeonites. The Israelites said to the Hivites. Now, as pastors, 
we made sure that we read multiple scriptures that talk about the Hivites being a group of people that need to be totally destroyed. It was an intentional redundancy in what we read to make sure that you understand this point right here. The Israelites are speaking to the Hivites. No matter what they call themselves. We're the Gibeonites. That's the town that we're from. They are still part of the enemy. We're part of your family, man. Aren't we just the Gibeonites to you? No! The Israelites are speaking to the Hivites. But perhaps you live near us. So how can we make a treaty with you? There's something about the way that you're speaking that sounds more like our enemy than our friend. There's something that's going on. Are you from around here? Because if you are, we can't make a treaty with you. As a matter of fact, we now know that we're mortal enemies and I'm pulling out my sword now. Listen to this answer. We are your servants. They said to Joshua. Okay. Walk with me here. The Israelites are speaking to the Hivites. Right. Where are you from? Because we can't make a treaty with somebody up close. Their answer, not to the Israelites, but to Joshua, was we are your servants. But Joshua asked, who are you and where do you come from? They didn't even answer the question. Let me, let me try to avoid the actual question that you're asking. Do you love Jesus? I go to church. That's not an answer to my question. I get it, Pastor. Are you serving the Lord? I really like what your church does. When people are not answering the question, you've got to be aware and understand and dial in your discernment and go, wait, there might be a ruse that is working against me right now. Joshua even asked the right question. Who are you and where do you come from? But Joshua doesn't battle for the full answer. Anybody ever been a good parent? You asked your kid the right question, but you then let them tell you what their answer was? Yes. Has anybody ever asked? Don't, don't make me come off the stage. I will do it. When you ask the right question to an employee, when you ask the right question to a boss, but you don't actually care about the answer. Because the ruse is on and you've already decided what you want to do in the process. Mm. Joshua doesn't battle for full answers. He allows himself to be easily satiated. Hey, brother, how's your holiness going? Well, it's been a tough week. You're not even answering the question. How's your holiness going? Let me tell you about what somebody else did. Ruse. Yep. Hey, what's going on? Let me look over there. Pay no attention to this. Please look over there, Pastor. Quickly. Quickly. Look. Except it's not just to us. Oh, it happens to us every day in many, many conversations. But it happens amongst the brotherhood. So Pastor says, hey, how are you and your wife doing? I've really been praying for the nations a lot. (laughs) How's your holiness doing? You know, I'm just, you know, struggling from a place of victory. What is that? You get the gist of it. God does not take generalities for an answer. And neither should we. 
That's one of the first ways that you begin to be able to work past this ruse and defeat it and see it for what it really is. Look in verse 9 of Joshua 9. They answered, your servants. This is now the third time that they've called themselves servants to Joshua. Look, I'm submitted to you, man. I'll do whatever you ask me to do. Your servants have come from a very distant country. But they never said exactly where they come from, did they? Because of the fame of the Lord your God. For we have heard reports of him. All they did in Egypt, all they did to the two kings of the Amorites, east of Jordan, Sihon, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtoreth. What they jumped to when being drilled down upon is flattery. They went from generality to flattery. I'm going to bring up all of the previous battles, all the victories that God has done at LCM to try and push your attention off of me and onto something else. They're looking to employ a subtlety of sympathy. He can have sympathy, man. Look how much LCM has accomplished, how many good things they've done for people, how many lives have been changed, people that have, be, have been set free from whatever it is. But just don't look at what's keeping me chained and in opposition to God. We are much more vulnerable to a ruse, a tactic of war, when we're more focused on past victories than the present battle. That's what they were aiming at with this flattery to Joshua. Look in the past at what God has done, but don't look right here, right now, what's in front of you. The tactic of sympathy through flattery, it led to sampling. Come on, let's look at verse 14 in Joshua 9. Look what the Israelites did. The Israelites sampled their provisions and did not inquire of the Lord. See, isn't this the real issue? Is that the people of God were sampling their wares. They were sampling the provisions, but didn't actually ask anything of the Lord that he might show them what's going on in this situation. They let their eyes, they let their mouths, they let their stomachs, they let their own senses determine if the truth was being yeah. told. Yep. I mean, I have a pretty good feeling about this. I mean, I like this guy's personality. I'm sure he must be telling the truth. Your senses, your sympathies, and your sampling. Come on. Your personal experiences. Do not outweigh the word of the Lord as illuminated in prayer by His Holy Spirit. Your personal thoughts on it do not, in fact, impact the word of God at all. It may be part of a, an enemy ruse to keep you from actually walking in all that God has for you if you're not careful when you begin to sample. Hebrews 5.14 in the, in the NASB says it this way, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. Come on. See, you can't be led by your senses. You have to spend your time daily to train your senses to abide by the word of God in every single way. Now we're talking about your sympathies and you making decisions based on your, uh, your senses, which is part of the ruse that the enemy has. But let's turn around and let's get to a good answer for us today. See, we clearly laid out what the problem is. The problem is the satanic stratagem, the ruse, the tactic of war, of sympathy. But we're going to give you a solution to this this morning. We're going to give you the ability to conquer this time after time after time. See, we solve the issue of sympathy by seeing it for what it really is. And it's founded on the word devotion. 
What sympathy really is, is something that is devoted to destruction. It deserves the full force of God to be totally wiped out, totally destroyed, so that you can clearly hear from God and be reminded of what you should do. See, our senses, our soulish senses, are designed to be trained. They're not designed to lead. And when we're subduing our sympathies with the word of God, it will lead you to a place that you have precise discernment. What are we aiming at as pastors in this church? We want every person sitting in this room to have precise discernment. Every word you give, every time that you step forward to do what God told you to do, you're on the mark again and again and again. God's tactic of war is founded upon this word devotion. And what we have for you are five ways that you're going to get equipped to train your soulless senses through this devotion. And you will endure the opposition of subtlety and ensure that divine discernment, military intelligence from heaven is right there inside of you. So the first one, we have a slide for you, is devotion to his word. Devotion to his word. Ezra 7.10 says this, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study. Everybody say study. Study. And observance. Say observance. Observance. Devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and teaching us decrees and laws in Israel. See, Joshua lost the battle at the first step. He had just got through reading the entirety of the the law of Moses. And now with this subtlety of sympathy, God's word was not directing his discernment. But when we are devoted to his word, it is the very first step in how we begin to win every single battle. Decisions are not based, cannot be based in sympathies or senses, but they have to be based in study and observance. See, deep convictions are formed through deep devotion to God's word. You're constantly reminded, no, this is what God said. This is what his word said. I cannot deviate from what he already said because it is the foundation by which my life is held together. Devotion to his word is the primary tactic of war from God for every believer. It is the foundational skill set in training your soulish senses and by the means that you will subdue the subtle sympathies. We have to take our stand with being devoted to his word more than we're devoted to anything else. It's only his word that can give you the precise discernment that you need in battle. See, being devoted to his word is going to keep you off of the roller coaster ride that some of us are on. Yeah. This thing where you do well if you feel well. Mm. Mm. well I'm feeling a little sick today. Uh, what does that matter at all to your devotion to his word? Come on. I've I've got a little I got got a little sniffle. I I don't know if I can really uh, really advance the kingdom today. I'll put a (laughs) I'll go hide in my basement until I get better. Uh, I mean, goodness knows what what may go on. I I don't really feel well. I'm feeling a little discouraged. So it's okay that I act with sympathy. No. What does that have to do with anything? When you're devoted to his word, you realize that you must step forward no matter how you feel. 
No yes. matter what your circumstances Amen. look like. No matter where you're going. No matter who the family member is that is talking to you and what they're saying to you. Amen. See, those sympathies for family members, those, those senses of how you feel, your devotion, actual devotion to the Word of God is going to cause you to rise above those things. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you feel. Stand up and be devoted to His Word. Let those chains of how you feel fall off of you today. Let those chains of what your family members think of you fall off of you today. This is how you're going to move forward. After you have a devotion to His Word, you know what you have? You need to develop a devotion to His work. Yeah. To His actual work. See, God's tactic of war. The ruse is something the enemy does to try to get you sympathetic to keep you off track. If he can't come face to face and knock you out, he'll just use these subtle sympathies, these soulish senses to derail you in everything that you do. Husbands and wives. We've got to have men and women who are rising up and becoming devoted to the actual work that God has. It cannot just be the men in this room who are devoted to the Word and devoted to the work. We've got to have some wives that are godly, that are on fire, that are full of power, and they don't care how they feel. They don't care what it looks like because they are devoted to the work of God. Yeah. We got to have some singles who rise up and decide that they're going to be devoted to the work Amen. of God now. When are you going to wait? How long are you going to wait? Has God not done enough for you as a single? Of course He's done enough for you. When are you going to rise up and be what you're supposed to be? Amen. You got to be devoted to His Word and you got to be devoted to His work. Look at Nehemiah chapter 5. Everybody can turn here with us. Nehemiah 5, verse 16. It says this, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. Somebody say, this wall. This wall. All my men were assembled there for work. We did not acquire any land. See, this this is talking about one people who were in unity, putting their hands to one wall, to one project. Man, we want you to understand your mezuzah. This is so true because it motivates you. It moves you. It gets you going in the right direction. Your family banner. But those things are in the context of a... It's in a larger context. By the way, if you're going to be building your own wall without it being connected in the right place, without it filling the space from where my brother is to where I am to where the next brother is, then what are you really doing other than building division? I'm dedicated to the work. But your work is on an island. You've separated yourself. Some of you, your work is on an island. And for some of you, that is the destination of where you must go. But your call, your work that you must be devoted to is in the context of everyone else that is sitting around you. Yeah. You are not isolated by yourself. That would be as silly as my youngest trying to decide what she was going to do within the context of my family. What a ridiculous notion. Come on, teenagers. What a ridiculous notion to think about yourself in an isolated framework from the larger context of your family. 
Come on, parents. What a ridiculous notion for you to be focused on just what your little family is doing outside of the larger context of the church that God put you in. Come on, LCM. You're worried about what LCM is doing, but you aren't focused on the larger context of the one association. Come on. When I'm talking about being devoted to his work, you've got to understand his work is bigger than you. Yeah. That's why it, it, there is no place for something devoted to destruction like sympathy. Joshua told, God told Joshua to wipe out every inhabitant in the land. What has God told you? What has God told us? I promise you he didn't send you here to have a different, an entirely different work that you're supposed to do that cannot be supported from this place. Don't be off by yourself building a wall of division. Find your place. Be devoted to this work. Because if I'm devoted, and Matt's devoted, and Judah's devoted, and JJ's devoted, you know what happens? Is we accomplish the work of the Lord. It's too big for any one of us to do. But if we do our part, we can get God's work done. We've got to get rid of the chains of deception, of the sympathies. No wonder your family keeps trying to lure you away from this place. No wonder your sympathies are are being played so hard because the enemy is trying to keep you from standing in your spot and being willing to die here. I am willing to die standing right here in Houston for LCM. Amen. We got to have some other men in this house who say, you know what? As much as I am moved by the nations, I am called here. I will stand here. I will build the wall here. We've got to have some men who say, it is my heart. Boy, I love it here. I'm getting trained, but I've got to go. I I do feel that my work is on an island. I do feel that my work is in a mountain. I've got to go, but this is where I'm learning how to build a wall. Amen. And I won't be separated from them even when I'm apart from them. Come on. I just get an assignment in a different part of the wall. But what I'm learning here is exactly what I will take there. You've got to be devoted to His Word, and you have to be devoted to His work. What a powerful word that Pastor just shared with you. Being devoted to His work destroys disunity. Being devoted to His work destroys every means of discord and allows us to be unified wall to wall, connected, though we're physically apart. There will be a day when we are sending out more families from this ministry to go to the region of Aswan, to go to Israel, to reach the ends of the earth in the precise locations that God has given us. And we're going to remain connected just as much then as we are now. The third thing that we're going to devote ourselves to is devoting yourself to discipleship. You guys are very clear And familiar with Acts 2.42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. With his word being spoken and now devoted to it. With his work before you and now you are devoted to it. You must now devote yourself to discipleship. You cannot overcome the stratagem of Satan, the tactics of war that he uses. By staying on the fringe. By just watching and observing the word. Watching and observing our work. You have to enter in and engage with discipleship. 
Discipleship is the very thing that trains your soulish senses. It gives you a living and breathing example of how to live out God's word and how to live out God's work. How many times have you personally benefited by being attached to a man or woman of God that had more experience with the word and work of God? That you were in that position. You knew what scripture said. You knew the general means of the work that you were supposed to do. But when you're standing there in a moment, you just didn't know how to carry it out. And because the man or woman of God that was more experienced next to you or at your disposal, you were able to get precise coordinates of how to accomplish this. Discipleship is what produces that. It is the way. Discipleship is the only way. The tactic of war of God's choice that he's designed to subdue our subtle sympathies. We ask those questions. Pastor? Brother, how would you handle this situation? But you see, what it takes to get to that moment is a level of vulnerability, humility, and transparency. If you're not willing to ask that question, then you are rejecting discipleship. You're not being devoted to it. When we have that connection, though, when we have that devotion to discipleship, now we can see the application of Scripture in a variety of circumstances. Now we can have the discernment to see beyond the satanic stratagem of sympathy. Acts 18, verse 2. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus. Yeah, yeah. Who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. And because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. See, Paul had been discipled by Barnabas, as we all know, but this is now a transference where he is joining others in the work. He's able to minister to them because he was devoted to discipleship in the past. He is now able to be devoted to discipleship in the future. But it doesn't just stop there with co-workers. Look what happens in the next verse. Every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. You notice how he becomes more precise when disciples show up. That both Silas and Timothy are now by his side and the Lord directs him. They need a clear example how to do this because they're going to take what you're doing and magnify it even more. And it put them on precise track to be devoted to discipleship just as much as he was. One of the things I love most about being devoted to discipleship is that it helps you get your first step right. It does. Yeah. Pastor, I've already gone 18 steps and now I need you to help me. (laughs) This is going to take a minute. Joshua missed his discernment on step one. A mighty man of God, one of the most powerful leaders the earth has ever seen. But his propensity after a victory to then not inquire of the Lord, allow the enemy to ruse him and deceive him and cause things in Joshua's life. Basically, the few failures that he had were related to this. See, discipleship is designed to catch the things that you're not catching. 
to see the things you're not seeing. If you could have seen it already about yourself, you wouldn't have done it. If I knew how to win in this area, I would already be winning. <laughs> that's, that's LCM. If we knew how to do it, we'd already be doing it. Wait, there's a better way to do it? Yes. Let me show you. Let us show you how to do yes. it. Then you have to devote yourself to praying His will. Being devoted to prayer, being watchful, thankful is what Colossians says. But everybody turn with me to James chapter 5. Why do you think the Lord has been emphasizing praying through the tabernacle? Because He's trying to get at a few things. James 5 verse 15 says this. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. Hey, remember when I said earlier about your senses and you're just, you're just not feeling well? Well, then let's start laying hands on you and get you better so you'll quit using that sense and you'll see God's power in your life. Amen. We'll make the sick person well. Amen. The Lord will raise him up. If he sinned, he will be forgiven. Are you saying that sometimes my physical condition is connected to other things that aren't just physical? Absolutely. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The goal of the prayer is not to make someone feel better in their emotions. The goal of prayer is to make them healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Hey, church, it's time for us to just stop praying about our daily needs, about our daily desires, about our daily difficulties, about our subtle sympathies, about our soulish senses. It's time for us to actually get direction in your own life and see how it's aligning with the direction of this house. God is saying it's time to dial it in. It's time to dial it in. It's time to get on point. It's time to get where you need to get. Some random generic information is no longer acceptable. you got to dial this in. Is it just the Aswan team who should know where they're supposed to go in life? It's every man and woman in this room. Where is God putting you? He's putting you here for now. But are you a pillar here? Or are you going to get sent out? Because that's the two choices you got in this house. Amen. You're either going to stay here and help us to send, or you're going to be the ones that get help to send. Amen. That's your choices. What nation is burning in your heart? What region of a swan are you called to? It's time for us yeah. to start dialing this in. It's been years for our brothers to have a clear perspective. It's been years. It's been years in the making. But what about you? Do you see how hard they work because they know that the going is inevitable? Perhaps some of us don't work as hard because we're lacking the clarity to know where you're supposed to be going. I got a little secret for you. I got a little secret, though. When you're devoted to praying, you know what you're being devoted to? His will. You're going to work hard now because that very well may be the key for you knowing where to go. Yeah. Amen. You get dialed in and you say, God, show me. Show me. Maybe it's not about me. Maybe it's about the generation that's after me. Maybe I'm supposed to be here to be a pillar because my kids are supposed to go to a swan. Wow. I have to be honest. I was taken back by your lack of response just then. So I'm going to say it again to help you. Maybe your position is here as a pillar because it's your kids that got to get to the nations. Yeah. 
Amen. My God, if we had a room full of people who were either going or staying in preparation for someone else, you want to talk about praying His will? You want to talk about understanding when God said that this my house will be called a house of prayer for the nations? You want to bring heaven to earth? You want to bring His kingdom down? This is how you do it. You've got to demolish your sympathies. You've got to get rid of following your senses. And you've got to train them so that you can be devoted. What if your status in the kingdom is only related to how devoted you are through prayer to accomplishing His will? It's time for us to dial it in, church. I know where I'm going to remain for the rest of my life, be it five minutes or 50 years. I know where I am. You need to get clarity. You need to get devoted to what God is saying. It may take you six months. It may take you a year to find out. But I'm telling you as pastor, I'm telling you what the Lord is wanting to speak to you. He's waiting on you dialing it in so that he can communicate it to you. He's not going to have to generate it. He's already got his desire. He already knows exactly where he wants Nolan and Tara. He's already got a plan for Keith and Floor. He's already got a plan. for He's already got a plan. When you are devoted to His will, when you are devoted to prayer, you're going to find out and be able to offer up prayers. We need some men in this house who can pray like Epaphras, always wrestling in prayer for other people. We need some miracles to take place in this house because we're dialing it in and we know what His will is and we are sending the ordinance of heaven to the exact spot that God is calling us to. It's time to dial it in, church. When we experience being devoted to prayer... In addition to getting clarity about what our call is and where we go, you know what else we get clarity about? What our brothers need. Where our brothers need to go. We're able to be that means of confirmation of what they are struggling to hear from the heavens. Maybe God's waiting on you to get right with Him, to be devoted to prayer so you can have a word that is designed to go to your brother. It's not going to come directly to them. God's waiting on you to get right. That's our fifth item. Devotion to brotherhood. God has given us such clarity on how to approach his throne by praying through the tabernacle. And what I want to bring to your mind, the times in the past four to five months when you have been praying with another brother, with your spouse, And you've been encouraged and confirmed by the word of heaven, by what was coming out of their mouth more than what was coming out of yours. You begin to hear them be devoted to the king of kings. You hear their struggles. You hear exactly what their victories are. You are able to discern what your brothers need from you and what they need from the Lord. This brings to mind Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. You know what being devoted to brotherhood does? It destroys and demolishes every thought that wants to be offended. Every thought and feeling that wants to be separate. It says, I will not permit you to exist in the territory of my soul. I'm going to put you to death because it is directly in opposition to being devoted to brotherhood. 
My brother needs me to be fully united with him and fully united with the Lord. His call is dependent upon my relationship with the Lord and with him. And if a fence gets in, it is trying to build a wall of division. It is trying to make a distinction to divide me from being devoted to brotherhood. But when we are putting that to death through devotion to brotherhood, the benefit is that the kingdom gets built wall next to wall next to wall. The enemy has no means of infiltrating God's camp, your heart, your family, this church, because devotion to brotherhood has secured it. Church, as we get ready to close here, I really feel that God is wanting to, to, get ri- to open our eyes from the ruse from the tactics, the stratagem that the enemy has been trying to pollute us with. Look at a summary of what we've encouraged you to today. Devotion to his word above all else. Devotion to his work and your part in his work. Devotion to discipleship. Devotion to praying for his will. Actually getting his will and going after it. Having clarity in what God has said. Devotion to brotherhood. Turn with me to our last scripture of the day. And we'll leave this slide on the screen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I want everybody turning there with me. So we can leave this on the screen. Second Corinthians 11. 2 through 3. I am jealous for you. With a godly jealousy. I realize that there was a writer of this passage, but I'm telling you this from the pastors and the elders in this room. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure bride, a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's ruse, that your minds, that your hearts may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I saw a picture in worship. It was people carrying their chains and they were choosing to do so. It wasn't because there wasn't enough power displayed in your life to break the chains off of you. Because we forgot that there were actually chains. The ruse had blinded us to see the chains that we're walking around with. One like a tie folded over another like a sash around the waist intentionally designed and falling at the hip but their chains their sympathies their soulless senses they've come because you've sampled the wares of the enemy and you've decided that that's what it was 
Church, I'm not speaking to you as ones who are far from God. I'm speaking to you as ones who are close and must dial in what God has for you. We have so much more work to do as a church. The time for flattery about what we have done is long past. We have actual work to do. You have actual work to do that will only be accomplished as there is a new level of devotion, as you get rid of the sympathies, as you quit following the senses, as you quit sampling and deciding that that's how you want to do this. In my spirit, I can hear the chains are starting to fall, though. Never to be picked up again never to be sympathized with again. I'm going to ask that you stand to your feet now. In just a minute, the altars are going to be open, but I can tell you right now that the heavens are open for you. Here at the altar today, what we're going to do is say this. Of course you need to get rid of sympathies. Of course you do. Of course you need to stop being led by your senses. I'm not asking you if you need that. I'm telling you that you need it or we wouldn't have preached it to you. Repent before the Lord for those things immediately while I'm praying for you, repent of those things. This altar today is stepping forward in devotion. You're stepping forward to say, my devotion is the answer to defeat these sympathies. My devotion to actually getting in the Word instead of everything else that I've allowed to just be okay. This is a place where you come and stand as a dedication of devotion to what God must do in us because He must have His work accomplished and we're saying do it in us. We will be the ones that will go. It will be our hands that build. It will be our feet that go. It will be our lives and our blood that we shed. This is an altar of devotion today. Mighty God, with the heavens open before us now, Crush our sympathies. Crush our senses and how we are led by them. Crush our sampling. But Lord, more so, we want to stand in devotion to you. Not a devotion from yesteryear, but a devotion today and every day that says no sympathy will take us from you. No being led of our senses will remove us from your presence. We will not fall prey to the ruse of the enemy. God, let this devotion be met with your specific word into hearts today. Specific words into the hearts of your people today. Lord, that you will break these chains off of us. Lord, you've already broken the lock. Now we must take them off and throw them to the ground, never to pick them up again. Move in your people today, mighty God.